Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I am Anne Friedman. Hi, Anne Friedman. Hi, Aminatu So. Well, what are we talking about today? Oh, wow. We are talking today about the very obvious conflict that has emerged between the many outward-facing statements that companies are making, quote, in this moment, um, ads, content, solidarity statements, pledges to do better, etc., um, and the same company's internal behavior, i.e. who is hired, who's promoted, who's given a raise, how people feel at your place of work, and essentially, like, do the black lives of your employees matter? Or is this just um, a statement that you feel like you have to make in order to continue to do business? Was it you that I was telling, or maybe it was on this very podcast last week, that the uh, I really wish that I had been compiling every single brand apology that I've seen because there is something like darkly funny to me about the fact that someone is telling a designer at every single company right now, hey, can you make a statement about Black Lives Matters? Or alternatively, can you make a statement of my apology for racism, but please make sure that it's in the brand identity? <laughs> in the brand identity, that. but also mostly black? Like, can you make that happen? Yeah, <laughs> there is just something about that that is really darkly funny to me. Designers across brands, please unite and tell your stories because the, the level of comedy and just darkness of it all is, is not lost on me. It's true. When you think about the fact that there are people who are implementing these statements, like the the poor social media manager who has to post like the very obvious two-faced embarrassing statement from like whatever corporation they're running the social feed for. Like, I mean, everyone up and down the chain is implicated in the bad behavior of the people who are actually in a position to change things and who have not. <laughs> Man. Well, so... I think a good entry point into this conversation is um, to talk about whatever is happening at um, Bon Appetit. Uh, mm. I can't believe I just said Bon Appetit. I was just uh, going to say, I was expecting a bon from you, not a bone. Listen, I would never... <laughs> one of my main beefs with Bon Appetit is truly the name Bon Appetit. It's so... Uh, I, I hate the fact that I'm saying it in an American English accent. I hate how Croissant. cheesy it is. <laughs> I hate, yeah, my my ancestors are rolling in the grave that I'm I'm saying these words. But, you know, Bonap, as the insiders call it, is a food magazine within the um, Condé Nast company of magazines. And they have recently been at the forefront, I would say, of this conversation in media about what does it mean when the media property puts out a statement saying that they are in solidarity with black people and also acknowledging that maybe the work that they do can be political. And there is a huge disconnect with the way that people who work inside of those companies is treated. I had never seen a Bonap video 
on YouTube, even though it is a huge YouTube empire, until maybe the week before this happened. And so it's been personally jarring for me that I picked my favorites just as the entire empire collapsed. (laughs) No! (laughs) But I am happy to report that in my one week of watching um, Test Kitchen videos, I had zeroed in on like truly a favorite person in this series who has turned out to be the person who has been the most vocal about the nightmare that is happening at Bon Appetit. Uh, I'm guessing your fave is Sola Elwaley. Ah, uh, one hundred P. I have been made aware of her test kitchen genius because I am also not a longstanding fan. But she came onto my radar this week because she is a person who had the courage to call out what was happening at that organization publicly. Yeah, so um, Sola is an assistant food editor at um, Bon Appetit, and she has also appeared in a lot of their YouTube video content, which the Bon Appetit YouTube channel is the real cash cow of the company. If you know anything about media, it's collapsing all of the time. (laughs) If you know one thing about media, make it that. If you know one thing about media, (laughs) it's that media is collapsing all of the time, and uh, most of these magazines are not profitable, but... Bon Appetit has found this like really profitable way of making videos. And so so this is why we like keep referring to the YouTube channels and to the to the test kitchen. And so Sola, unlike most of the cast, essentially, and the the other people who star in these videos is not white. There are very few non-white people in these videos. And there are two ways to appear on this Bon Appetit channel. Some people like Sola are actual staff members at Bon Appetit, which means that they have other responsibilities. They're editors, they're writers, they like test recipes. And then there are people that are employed directly by Condé Nast Entertainment to appear in the video. So it's like the distinction is a person who works there and then a person who is just contracted to come, you know, like appear in the videos. The revelation of this week has been that Sola has said that she felt that she was used in, you know, to quote her as a display of diversity and that unlike the rest of the the white people who appear on these videos, that the people of color were not compensated for their time and for their appearances. Right. While at the same time, like bolstering the diversity of, um, you know, Condé Nast cooking uh, YouTubes. And in general, bolstering the quality of their content, not only being this kind of visual presence that like, oh, hey, don't worry, we have some people of color who work here, but also like truly like doing lots of work. You know what I mean? Like actually weighing in on how are these people who are paid with, you know, the contracts you describe to appear on video, how are they doing their jobs, like supporting those people and doing a very similar job to many of them without the same contract or pay. So basically what happened is that the editor of Bon Appetit, Adam Rappaport, published a statement column that was headlined, Food Has Always Been Political. And after this statement, shortly after that statement, a number of writers started coming forward about their experiences in pitching stories to the magazine, trying to get the magazine to care about their perspective and their recipes and ideas. Shortly thereafter, a photo of him in brownface. I think the photo was from 2006, but was posted in like 2013. I mean, definitely like we're not talking about something from the 80s. We're talking about some recent, uh, like, you know, he is an adult dressing in brownface. 
that also surfaced. And, uh, and also a and- picture that had been on the internet for a long time, honestly. I just, like, want to impress upon everyone that it's not some sort of gotcha. No one went and, like, looked through his personal archive and found this photo. This is a photo that in um, previous years other people have seen and it was not... Um, while it was registered as a problem, um, very smartly by a lot of people, it did not cause any waves because of the fact that uh, people didn't think that it was important at the time. Right. And and it definitely, you're right, that people were aware of this photo. I mean, originally, um, someone went and found it on his, on Adam Rappaport's wife's Instagram. Like, that's where it originally appeared. But as um, as many people have pointed out, that's the kind of thing you don't go looking for unless there are lots of other problems, right? Like it is not it is not like someone was like, this guy seems really great. Let me see like what sort of misbehavior is happening in like these other corners of the internet. Like, no, like this is because there is some sort of systemic issue where people who work with you personally are feeling dismissed or that maybe you're the kind of person who would mock other cultures or do something like appear in brown face. And that sort of the story of how it started originally to circulate. But you're totally right. Like many things that fit in this category of more powerful people being held to account, it was like open secret status, I guess I would say, among people who who were working for this person. The day after he released this statement, um, it has since come out that he denied a request for a pay raise from Ryan Walker Hartshorn, who at the time was the only black woman on the magazine staff. So <laughs> there's like that. And then I want to recommend folks listen to the Sporkful podcast, which is a podcast that does an, a TikTok of kind of like the events specifically as they relate to Bon Appetit. After this statement came out and this photo recirculated, there was an all staff meeting via Zoom because that's what happens now. And in that meeting, he was sort of like, oh, I apologized. Cool. Anyone need to talk about it? And it was silent. And then, as Sola said in this interview on The Sporkful, she was the person to say, um, yeah, actually, I do want to talk about it. And are you going to resign? I'm paraphrasing. You should listen to her tell the whole story. And in essence, she also had to be the one to say, hello, all of my colleagues, most of you white, who have your cameras turned off, who have your audio turned off, do you care to chime in here? She was the person who was raising it internally. And then after that Zoom call, she decided to post publicly about the pay disparity in the videos. And that's when it came to my attention that all of this was going on. I think that that was my point of entry. I don't think I had seen his statement because who can keep track of all the statements? So that is like the high level view or like the real like beat by beat view of what's happening at Bon Appetit right now. And of course, it's not just happening at Bon Appetit, right? (laughs) Right. You know, I think that what's really interesting about this moment is that these kinds of conversations are not just happening at Bon Appetit. If you've been plugged into the world of media, you know that a lot of people are resigning and um, facing a lot of consequences over this kind of behavior. This is happening at Refinery29, which is a publication that their stated goal has been to like uplift women and to be fun and creative and smart. And It's really interesting to see that even in a space where people proclaim to be feminists and proclaim to be doing things um, to make people feel good about themselves, that 
every single dynamic of oppression in the real world also manifests itself in the workplace and manifests itself in all sorts of insidious ways. So I've been really following like the story at Refinery29 because it's a site that I've been reading and and you and I come from the internet and where we saw the the rise of these kinds of websites that were aimed towards women. The story there is not unlike the story that is happening in other places, you know, where a former employee, Ashley Elise Edwards, noticed that Refinery29, like all big media properties and like big brands had blacked out their homepage and were, you know, putting square, like little black squares on social media, ostensibly to say that they were in support of black lives. And she tweeted at her former employer saying, hey, cool blacked out homepage. That was not my experience <laughs> there. You know, and, and to quote the tweet, she says, but you know what real allyship looks like? Paying your black employees fairly, having black women in top leadership positions and addressing the microaggressions your black employees deal with from management on a daily basis. And then friend of the podcast, Ashley C. Ford, also went on the record talking about her experience there. So this story to me, I think, is so important because sometimes women's media likes to put themselves above the fray because they say that they care about um, either women's empowerment or feminism, which, as we know, are two different things. But um, I'm not going to dispute those semantics here today. (laughs) But, you know, it's interesting that like companies that say that they care about that will also not look inwards and say, hmm, what kind of women are we really celebrating and what kind of women are we are we giving opportunities to here? Right. And I think that there is something going on in particular when it comes to companies that have white women at the helm, wherein we had Me Too. And yeah, that was about power and abuses of power and people not recognizing the power they had. But like, that was a that was a men thing, mostly, right? Or like, that was about like, sexual misconduct, mostly, right? And I think that like, one thing that we have always tried to talk about as it relates to the Me Too reckoning is that fundamentally, this is about power and what can happen when someone misuses their power, when someone doesn't acknowledge the power they have over coworkers or office culture, all of the ramifications of that. And what I'm really seeing happening here is like at its base, it's the same kind of story. It's just in this case, the editors are white women, you know, and white men in the case of like Bon Appetit and other places, but specifically with the Refinery29 example, a white woman who I'm sure I haven't looked at the archives, but I'm sure Refinery29 published a slew of articles relating to Me Too. And it's like, I think it is just so important to kind of say, look, like, we don't need to draw a parallel between um, various kinds of reckoning in, in, you know, in all of the specifics, but at a fundamental level, Um, how are you dealing with the power that you have and how are you deploying it is part of this story. Right. And, you know, to to look at the stories of other women who have worked at Refinery29, um, another ex-employee, Channing Hargrove, um, you know, like really details her own experience there and talking about um, how she understood that favoritism was at play in every way that decisions are made there. And so she says that at one point, a manager told her to start complimenting her editor-in-chief because, quote, because she has all these issues with you and it really comes down to the fact that she thinks you don't like her. And, you know, for Black women, this is something that cuts to a really, really, really painful place. This idea that 
one minute, people really like you for the difference that you bring. You bring diversity and you bring, uh, you bring a new perspective and you bring a fresh kind of energy. But the minute that you actually use your voice to start to do something, you are seen as a threat. And so, you know, this is the, the pet to threat uh, workplace phenomena that so many black women are, are aware of. Again, like you're so right about the, even though they're not the same thing, the parallel with Me Too, where we are really challenging about, we're really talking about challenging a power structure. Mm. Um, You know, the fact that white women are really failing to see that it is power that is at play here and not just, not just an accusation of, oh man, you don't like a black lady at work. It's like, no, no, no. Like you come to work with your own set of privileges and your own baggage and your own whatever. And it is completely possible that you're getting screwed over in a system that is male dominated. And at the same time, it is possible that you can perpetrate that same kind of inequality down the line to women of color. And it's just really disappointing that properties and magazines that let's say that they are about showing like, you know, like what's up with what's up with women, like don't seem to understand that. I agree. And I really I'm glad you mentioned that story that Channing Hargrove told about how she had been asked to basically play nice or like like make sure your boss, which is Christine Barbaric, who is the editor, who was was the editor of Refinery29, make sure that she knows you like her. Like that really strikes me as like part of the heart of this. You know, Channing Hargrove is like doing Channing Hargrove's job, right? Like, and then and then all of a sudden this whole like, oh, but I feel like you don't like me if you are presenting a challenge to this system feels like very, very much a problem that is related to this dynamic of white womanhood, right? Like it means I have no way of seeing myself as part of the system you're challenging. And so I'm going to take it as personal. Like, I think I'm doing great. There is just so much to unpack in that quote about like, she thinks you don't like her because, wow, and I do think that it's, it, it is related to not being able to accept that, like, for all of the empowerment language and for all of the ways in which, like, maybe you are exposing other injustices or maybe you are actually helping women navigate difficult situations, that you still have a lot of work to do and are also part of the problem. These are nuances that I think are a lot easier to talk about from a critique point of view. And I think like speaking for myself personally, it's like can be in real time very hard to unpack or you really have to have a lot of self-accountability in order to unpack that in a day-to-day way. Yeah, you know, I really hear you about the accountability because I think that one thing that is so apparent here, right, is that um, obviously we are living in a time of just like great, great upheaval. In the middle of a pandemic, people are marching in the streets like all over the United States to uplift black lives and to uplift trans lives and we are we are just like in a moment that is I think really really special but also really transformative I was so heartened to see that this weekend there was for at the march for for black trans lives 15,000 people showed up that is something that if you had asked me about that even two months ago I don't know that I would have believed that that was possible or if you had told me that the killing of George Floyd in Minnesota would spark this huge show of support and outrage and that as a country, more people than not would say that they think that police brutality against black people is a real thing that happens and is a problem. Even a couple of weeks ago, I wouldn't have believed that that was possible. So the moment really to me does feel electric and it does feel different. 
And it also feels dangerous in the sense that, um, you know, a lot of brands and a lot of media properties understand that it is a moment to capitalize on. And the way that they're doing it is in doing these empty statements. And even if the statement is not empty, right, if even if the statement is like, yes, food is political, I'm glad that you have come to that awareness, Adam Rappaport, in 2020. <laughs> um, like, even if you're saying that, that, that it's it's how you know, like, who is paying attention and who is also... Who is reading the room of what is going on? We are having a serious conversation in this country about defunding the police. It is not a, a fringe belief or, you know, like a thing that leftist people are, are, are secretly whispering to each other about. It is a real conversation that is happening now and it is a change that's possible. If we can defund the police, we are 100% going to defund fucking Bon Appetit. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> that is, like, this is so nuts. And so the fact that people will make these statements and not understand the real political implications of them. To use the Bon Appetit example, if you are saying that food is political and that's something that you believe, if you cannot connect the dots from that to the way that you treat the employees at your company and connect those dots to here is historically how our magazine has just elevated all sorts of just fine white food as, you know, to the detriment of food that people of color in this country are eating and telling them that actually every summer we're going to run another like crawfish boil or lobster boil thing because comfortable food is accessible food. If you can't see all of that, you have no business saying that food is political because you are lighting a match inside your own house. And yeah. that for me has been, it's been really, I, I've had a really hard time grokking that because I generally come from a cynical perspective with all of this. But there is really a part of me that is also just not discouraged, but not understanding how you can, with boldness, say, oh, I, I, I stand with, you know, like, like make a political statement and not understand the implications of that political statement. Right. These are people who are words people, right? In theory. In theory, media yeah. people like are words people. And so you should know the difference between verb tenses, right? Like, can you say we have done this? Like, we have done an internal audit. Like, it, one meaning of reckoning is like taking account of. Can you understand the meaning of your words in order to say, like, this is what we have done and this is what we are, like, in the process of implementing, like, as in a concrete thing, as opposed to a high-level or ultimately quite passive statement, like, frankly, Black Lives Matter. Like, I believe the sentiment of that statement, but if you are a concrete organization responding in this moment, that is not a concrete thing. That is a, that is a great thing to be in solidarity with, but it does not actually speak to anything that you're doing internally. And so I have been really attuned to the fact in my correspondence with people I do business with, with companies that I buy from, looking at these statements and sending an email that is like, hey, cool statement. I also very much agree that Black Lives Matter. Can you fill me in on like what the bullet list plan is for what you're doing internally? How are you actually making that true? Whatever that looks like for your business. And I think most businesses have employees, so that's a good place to start. Like who are you hiring? What is your hiring pipeline? And not just like what race are the interns you're hiring, but like how are you enabling like 
you know, a true cross section of people to apply and actually get and make a living wage at your entry level positions? How are you really receiving ideas and criticism and feedback from those people? How are you promoting people? How do you handle ideas that might be at odds with your self-conception of who you are as a person, as an editor, as a boss? These are the kinds of questions that those statements just never even touch. And I think that, you know, it's it's really quite funny to me that I'm pretty sure that Adam Rappaport thought his food has always been political essay. I'm sure he wrote that and felt fucking great. You know, like, I'm sure he wrote that and was like, here I am writing something that's specific to who we are. And it's like, no, <laughs> that's still the same kind of high level sentiment, which is not actually what is called for from you, a person with considerable power. Let's take a break. You know, the the other way, honestly, that the whole scam is laid bare is when you realize that the company is always worried about the wrong audience. You know, I'm like, yes, the audience of your Instagram um, should probably know that you believe, you know, I don't know, uh, Black Lives Matter, food is political, whatever the statement is. But the barometer to me is how do the people inside the house feel? You mm -hmm. know, and you can always tell it's like if you are not communicating about it inside, it will go all sorts of sideways for you outside. And so my hope has been really renewed. And I'm so inspired by people who work at these companies who are really doing the painful work of excavating all of the ways that structural racism is playing out at their companies. You know, like watching um, Sola's Instagram stories or all of these women that are speaking out at Refinery29, the other women that are speaking out at Condé Nast, the women that are speaking out at all sorts of companies, risking their own employment and a lot of, t a lot of times or risking NDAs that they've signed to say, hey, actually, this place is not cool. It's not lost on me that they are taking really big risks going up against these, these behemoths and I think that it's important to not let those risks go to waste. We have such an opportunity to transform these places that we work at. And some of them, frankly, I'm like, burn them to the ground. We don't need them as, as institutions. 100%. I also, a part of this story for me is about the inherent conservatism of like big media properties. And I mean that not in the like left right political sense, but in the like, we want to do what feels safest, we want to do what we've done in the past. And what's really funny about that is, we have talked about this 2011 Women's Wear Daily article, which the aforementioned Adam Rappaport makes an appearance in along with a handful of other men who were then in their 30s and 40s who had been elevated to top-level editing jobs. The headline, memorably, was Dude, Where's My Magazine, which I believe is a reference to the movie Dude, Where's My Car? I know. <laughs> I know. I know. All sorts of, all sorts of problems. But, but also, like, not just this article. Like, the New York Times article announcing Adam Rappaport's ascent to editor-in-chief um, Do you remember what that was headline, Anne? Do you remember oh, what that was headline? Oh, a new flavor at Bon Appetit. <laughs> a new flavor. Like, I what? know. And I do think that, like, what's going on there is, like, 
we like the idea of ourselves as people who are really like doing something new and exciting. But at the end of the day, a lot of conversations that happen internally in media are about like, oh, but like, will people recognize this thing we're talking about? Have people already heard of this person we're trying to highlight? And it's like, actually, the way many people consume media is to find out about guess what? New things they haven't heard about before. And I think that a lot of the conversations that happen behind closed doors, choices that are made about who should be an editor or a voice that gets elevated, who gets to be a person in front of a camera, a lot of prejudices are couched using this kind of faceless audience as the excuse. Like, actually, what they want is the white person they've already heard of. Right. What they want is the man they're already comfortable with. And what they want is each other. It's like, I remember my visceral <laughs> reaction to reading this, um, you know, dude, where's my, uh, where's my magazine piece back in 2011, where... You know, the story is ostensibly that all of these media guys are cool, right? It's like, oh, yeah, they're cool. And I'm like, mm, you're cool for a dude who works in media, which is not cool at all. <laughs> That's like one problem. That's truly, I was like, the heart of my darkness really about all of this is that I won't even name them. Like, you should go read the piece for yourself. But all of these people in their industry have developed a reputation for being, you know, like, quote, quote unquote, cool people, which generally just means that you are a white man who is like around 30s and has a sneaker budget. You know, I was like, there is no world in which being in a fraternity at Duke makes you a cool person. But that's a story <laughs> for another day. That's a story for the another opposite. day. Yeah. But, you know, it's like just thinking about just how homogeneous that world is. And they are only talking to each other. They are only referencing each other. They are only making media for each other, which, you know, I guess at some point was helpful. But I am someone who a long time ago subscribed to Bon Appetit and no longer did because it's a lifestyle magazine that's masquerading as a food magazine. It's truly just like travel as food. And when you are someone like me who's like, well, actually, like, I have traveled a lot. I come from a lot of different places. I, too, know uh, that Oaxacan food will be hot one day. There is something <laughs> just very, there is something very grating about the repetitiveness and truly, like, the colonial mindset of just a white man who thinks that he's teaching you something because he ate a taco for the first time, like, two days ago. And the thing that, honestly, when we have these conversations that I think always gets lost is that I really wish that businesses would understand everything that they lose when they decide that only one kind of person can work there. Oh, yeah. If Yeah, I don't think that diversity is a moral imperative. I was like, if you want to be racist inside your house, go be racist inside your house. That does not keep me awake at night. Um, diversity as a business imperative, though, and as a creative imper like imperative is something that I think about all the time. It's like uh, watching the other other people in food whose stories had been shut out of this magazine because they were not accessible to the editor in chief. I'm like, that is actually a huge loss, is a huge loss on a business level and is a huge loss for the audience as well, because we have decided that only one kind of person gets to be in charge at a media company or at a tech company or, you know, you name it. Not to keep ranting on and on about it, but I think that that to me, it, it's really like the core of my frustration and the core of, of what makes me mad. And when I was watching Sola on the Test Kitchen videos and she's literally cooking circles around the other people in those videos, you know, and she technically knows so much. She used to own a restaurant called Hail Mary that was amazing. When I think about someone like that who is so technically skilled brings so much to the table and then to find out that she was so vastly underpaid 
it's so infuriating. It's so infuriating on so many levels. And it's the story of, you know, pick a company, there is a Sola. You know, there are many, 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 many Solas. And I just hope that we can get to a point where, you know, that this conversation gets to happen out loud and it gets to happen more often because the result is truly a lot of pain for people who are not white and work in companies that are run by mostly white people. I think that it is lost on the white people that it's actually a very painful experience to be somewhere where you are not reflected and you're or you're not allowed to be yourself. And on top of that, they are not paying you correctly. It's really insulting and it happens to so many people. I 100% agree with all of that. And I think that once you, this is where I have galaxy brain moment of like when you expand, okay, it's not just media. When you think about all the other companies where this is replicated, like literally a sea of these statements and all of these places where, you know, the one or two like black people who work there are like, not able to like do their best work are not able to kind of like make the things that you and I want to read and see and buy and experience like the enormity of that loss you know I guess I'm like I guess what I'm trying to say is like I hear you and also just like if every one of those black squares represents like this happening at an internal level because I think we can wager a fair guess that in a lot of places it does just wow the enormity you know I know the loss it's it's everywhere and it's bad for the audience. So, you know, before you just like make an empty statement to your audience, actually think about what they want and what would serve them. And truly, if your business model is that in order to be successful, you are going to not pay people of color well. Well, um, you know, I'm like, we have other words for that. So <laughs> uh, I, that that is a concept that uh, historically we have really we have really understood in this country. So it's infuriating and it's also very sad. Yeah. And I think that one thing that's going on here, I'm sorry that I cannot remember the person who tweeted this, so I cannot credit them. But like what they were what they were essentially saying is like, it's all well and good to make a statement about the future. But like, is part of your process going back and talking to people who are no longer working for your company about what their experience Mm -hmm. has been and like really like wanting to sit with the knowledge of that? the pain that you've created or the frustration that they felt for years and years. Because to me, that is a part of this process too, about like, as these companies look to and really like, you know, try to hold up and like, finally be like, well, what do you think? And like, all eyes turn to like the one black administrative assistant in the room or something like that, really asking yourself like, okay, who's not here and why? Like, who has passed through these doors? And like, what might they have to tell us about all the growth that we have to do? Because the other truth is that someone who's still employed, you know, might not want to take the risk to say this, you know, like not everyone is in a position where they can be honest about this experience on Twitter. And so if people in charge are really serious, especially people with professed feminist ideas, like at many of these companies, the question is like, who are you asking for some real feedback from and how are you compensating them for that feedback? Ooh, that's real. Yeah, you know, and like we said, this is not just happening in media. I think and I hope that we will see a lot of different people speaking up about the injustice that they are incurring at work. This is a conversation that's very much top of mind for me because I have moderated many conversations at The Wing. I'm a member at The Wing. And I will say that, you know, it's it's a space that I have really championed and I have enjoyed going there both for like myself and also because it's a company that is built by people who are my friends. And 
all of the work that I've gotten to do there has been so meaningful to me because I get to work with my friends all day. You know, and The Wing is a space that I have enjoyed personally and professionally. It's a space that has afforded me a lot of visibility. And frankly, like I've gotten a lot of very well-paying work from there. I only have amazing things to say about the people that I have worked with and the way that they have treated me. And it's also true to say that that was not the experience of the women of color, mostly black women who work there. And that is something that I am contending with a lot. I am not an employee there, but it's really important for me to recognize publicly that I'm someone that has benefited greatly from having that as a platform. And I am also someone that a lot of people have trusted in order to, to go in that space. And even though I've always made the distinction between like there's capitalism and there's feminism and there's, you know, business and those things like do not mix very well. I, I went into it like full steam ahead like everyone else. And hearing the stories from employees this week about how they have been treated has been it has been really, really, really eye opening for me as well. And I know that a lot of people who are a member of that space have been talking about it. And so I think that it is both true that one can be treated very well. I'm like, I'm a black woman who has benefited greatly from this platform. That can be true. And it is also true that a lot of black women who have worked there, mostly in hourly positions, have not been treated that way at all. And it's not acceptable. You know, and this for me, it's where it really comes, you know, living out your politics is is something that we talk about on the show all the time. The conversation series that I host at The Wing really is about using your power and using your voice and also calling into question all sorts of systems. And this is one system that was clearly not working. Right. And I think that, you know, as you say, there can be multiple truths at once, right? Like you can see part of the story. This goes for all kinds of situations, like like the kind of collaboration you're talking about where you're not actually an employee. It can go for how you experience a workplace. Again, not to not to draw a neat parallel, but in the way that when we saw Me Too stories start to come out, some people would say, well, that guy was always totally fine to me. He wasn't a creep at all. You know what right. I mean? Like not people the point. can have not the point. Exactly. People can have really different experiences. And I think one thing for me is really thinking about, again, myself as a person of great power and how do I leverage that power moving forward? You know, and how do I say like, okay, like this is an institution or a company that's bought into me. And how am I using that fact to ask for some of the concrete things that I wish these companies were putting in their statements? And some of that happens in a in an email, like, you know, in this moment. But I think also some of that happens in an ongoing way, in in the questions that you ask, um, you know, the conditions that you create for agreeing to work somewhere. And also, frankly, in the kind of friendships and alliances that you form. I have been really thinking a lot about my own experiences when I worked on staff in media and many of those positions were positions of hiring power and boss level positions and really asking myself, like, what did I know? What did I really know about the experience of my coworkers and the people I managed who were black or who were people of color? And like, that's a question that like, this is now in the rear view. But I also think that like, those are the kinds of questions I'm trying to apply now moving forward. Like, what info do I really have? Right. And also, you know, with the full knowledge that Working at a company <laughs> puts you in bed with capitalism, which is a system that is not great. 
And, you know, with the full knowledge that institutions will always fail you, even though we work with them and we work inside of them and we work alongside them, these are questions that we are going to have to keep asking ourselves all the time. And when we are challenged, not be defensive about outcomes or about really having a reckoning with our own part in the system. Because I think that where this really breaks down for me when I was reading so many accounts of, you know, like CEOs getting fired or people stepping down this the element of defensiveness of just you know just saying like I'm just a person or I tried my best to me um, you know it it really breaks down there because we are not talking about whether someone is nice or not or whether someone is someone you know like someone that you want to have at your dinner table or whether they're they're a good parent or a good like friend or whatever we're really talking about entrenched systems. So it doesn't actually matter like who you think you are. It only matters how each of us are leveraging our power and what we are doing to protect each other. Right. And catching yourself doing things like, you know, for me being like, whew, I'm not a member of the wing. It's like, please, like I am I am a member of so many institutions and places and like places that like, you know, my power can be leveraged, right? Like there's this feeling right now, I think, of a lot of like, intensity and heat on this question and on this issue, you know, the sense of like, oh, is it my time to have the email receipts dragged out and to have things that I don't remember like pulled into the spotlight is really like the wrong question, right? Like the right question is, where's my power now and how am I deploying it? Yeah, it feels, I keep saying it, it feels a little bit dangerous, but it also feels really exciting. I I love that we are just like in a moment where some really important things centered around liberation are coming more and more to the to the fr- to the foreground and are becoming more and more mainstream positions that's good for all of us it also means that it will be painful for a lot of us right yeah that like who who has ever been through a major upheaval without some pain like on a personal level right like and then extrapolate that to huge entrenched ideas that we have about ourselves as workers or about the institutions we're bought into or about like companies we thought were cool or about like the United States of America. You know what I mean? Like it's really like there is really a lot of pain that comes along with the possibility. On that on that hopeful note, I will see you on the Internet, my friend. See you on the Internet. You can find us many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, we're on all your faves. Subscribe, rate, review, you know the drill. You can call us back, leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. We have editorial support from Laura Bertacci. Producer is Jordan Bailey. This podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. <laughs>